Our New Testament scripture reading this Lord's Day is taken from Acts chapter 11. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain vessel descend, as it had been a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. Upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. (coughs) And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus (coughs) and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all, 
that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. <coughs> and in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. May the Lord bless the reading of his words and now the preaching of his words as well. What is new about the New Covenant? Dear ones, we cannot fully appreciate what we now enjoy as God's people in the New Covenant if we do not understand why the New Covenant was instituted and what advantages and benefits it offers over the Old Covenant, which the Lord had graciously instituted with his people of old. On the one hand, some have erroneously understood the word new to mean a covenant that is absolutely new, having little or no resemblance to that covenant which is designated old. New as it, as it is used in this misapplied sense is a covenant radically and essentially different from that which is described as old. Let me illustrate how new in this sense is being used. We may speak of two completely unrelated individuals. The first being an old man who lived a hundred years ago and the second being a new baby girl who presently lives. The only thing that the old man and the new baby girl have in common is that they are both human beings. In all other ways, we see them as having little or no resemblance. This is how some incorrectly view the old and the new covenants. On the other hand, others have correctly viewed the word new when it is used of the new covenant to mean a covenant that is new in some respects without changing the essential nature of that covenant that is designated old. New, as it is accurately used in this sense, is a covenant that is only different in certain circumstances, but unchanged in its essence and being from the old covenant. For the old and new covenants are essentially the same covenant of grace. Now, perhaps the best way to illustrate this proper idea of new is to speak of the same individual, that is, the same person, 
who grows from an age of immaturity to an age of maturity. For example, someone may look at photographs of himself at different stages of his life and say, that was the old childish me, but this photograph depicts the new adult me. In this illustration, the person is the same, but has simply grown and matured in certain respects. This is the proper meaning of new when applied to the new covenant. For the illustration just used is not original with me, but is actually the very way in which the scripture itself illustrates the concept of new when applied to the new covenant. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 and following, the people of God under the old covenant are described as an heir to an inheritance, but an heir that is a young child. And therefore, because it is a young child, it cannot yet receive the full benefits of that that inheritance. Whereas the people of God under the new covenant are described as the same heir that is now matured to adulthood and has therefore come into full realization of his inheritance, which he had promised to him while he was yet a young child. Old and new. Thus, the new covenant is actually the realization and fulfillment of what was promised to come in the old covenant under various ceremonies, types, and shadows. Also consider that when Jesus speaks of a new commandment, as he does in John 13:34, where he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. In what sense is this commandment new? This commandment is not essentially new and never before revealed. For in Leviticus 19.18, the same commandment is given in its essence. There we read, very familiar passage. I'll just read the part that pertains to this. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What then is new about this new commandment that the Lord speaks of in John 13, 34 is the circumstance of Christ laying down his own life as the example that we are to follow. That is what is new about this commandment, not that the essence of the commandment is new, but a certain circumstance. Now you have a particular example in following Christ and understanding better, more clearly, how you are to love one another. See, this, this new commandment did make that old commandment more full, more complete, and more clear. 
but it did not change the essential nature of the commandment. So likewise, the new covenant is not entirely different from the old covenant, covenant, but brings to fulfillment all that was promised in the old covenant concerning Christ and his finished work. From our text, this Lord's Day, which is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, Let us further consider the new covenant under these three main points. First main point, the parties involved in the new covenant in Hebrews 8.8. Secondly, the weakness of the old covenant, Hebrews 8.9. And thirdly, the blessings of the new covenant. Hebrews 8, 10 through 13. Now, I will only have time this Lord's Day to look at the first main point. <clears throat> I do want to give uh, sufficient time to explain this passage, and I do believe that it involves more time than I have just this Lord's Day. But this Lord's Day, we will consider the first main point in Next Lord's Day, we will consider further the last two points. <clears throat> and so, the first main point. The parties involved in the New Covenant. Look with me at Hebrews 8.8. 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The letter to the Hebrews was most likely penned by the Apostle Paul and was sent in order to encourage Hebrew Christians to look to Christ and the New Covenant. That is the New Testament ratified in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as the object of their faith. Rather than looking back over their shoulders to the Old Covenant. For to look back to the Old Covenant and to follow it was to place oneself back in the age of anticipation of a Messiah who was to come rather than in the age of realization of a Messiah who has already come. Thus, to return to the Old Covenant, dear ones, was in effect to deny Christ and his precious blood and rather to look back to the priests and the ceremonies, and the blood of animals for one's salvation. Paul, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, argues that while the Old Covenant had its glory for a designated period of time in promising a Messiah who was to come through its various ceremonies, nevertheless, the New Covenant far exceeds the Old in that the promises of the Messiah have now been realized in Christ and his work as our mediator. Therefore, Paul pleads, Israel cannot now expect salvation or sanctification by returning to the Old Covenant, but only by embracing the New Covenant 
of a realized Messiah. Thus Paul seeks to establish in Hebrews chapter 8 that Christ having fulfilled perfectly the office of a high priest in offering his own life as a perfect sacrifice for sinners has become the mediator of a better covenant than that of the first one under Moses. Notice what he says in Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Now as we consider Hebrews 8.8, in any covenant one must identify the parties between whom the covenant is made. Otherwise, the obligations or blessings of the covenant may not be duly owned or duly enjoyed by those who are bound together. For example, let's look at a, a covenant here in the Old Testament. If you'd like to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. <clears throat> we will see in verses 15 and 16 a covenant that was made between two individuals, two parties. It says, But also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. Now this is Jonathan speaking to David. Know not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. There Jonathan and David swear in God's name that they will preserve the life of one another. But even more than that, as you read this particular covenant, they bind not only themselves but their future posterity that they will not destroy one another. The house of Jonathan, the house of David are bound by this particular covenant together. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 20, later on in the same chapter, verse 42. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, forasmuch as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And so what appears to be A very simple covenant between two individuals actually ends up being a covenant between those individuals and all of their posterity as well. And so it is important again to understand in covenant who is actually involved as the parties. Parties specifically in the new covenant are said to be in Hebrews 8.8 God on the one hand 
and the house of Israel, the house of Israel, underscore the word house, and the house of Judah, on the other hand. This particular passage from which we're reading in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through, through 13, actually uh, is first a prophecy that one will find in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. And there, again, is helpful to see within its context who is God addressing primarily this new covenant too. Who are the parties? It is God, it is the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. We'll say more about that as we proceed to the sermon. Dear ones, it was an indescribable, indescribable act of condescension for the Almighty God to promise eternal life upon the basis of the covenant of works to a sinless creature, as he did to Adam and his posterity in the Garden of Eden. But it defies all acts of condescension for the infinitely holy God to promise eternal life upon the basis of the covenant of grace, which he himself would fulfill in the person of his own Son to the undeserving houses, of Israel and Judah. God promises to establish this new covenant with a backslidden, unfaithful people who by their sin had broken the first covenant graciously made with them, whereby Israel as a nation had become the bride of Christ. And this he did not only once in the old covenant, But a second time in the new covenant, he renews that marriage covenant with Israel. Even after they had gone after other gods, even after they had put to death through their consent and through their conspiring together with the Romans, their own husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Her Lord promises to establish a new covenant with the houses of Israel and Judah, whereby he will draw her to himself with promises of renewed love in an everlasting covenant. Three observations ought to be made at this point in regard to this new covenant between God in the houses of Israel and Judah. And we're going to spend the rest of our sermon discussing these three observations. First observation is this. Both of the covenants, old and new, made with the houses of Israel and Judah, are one and the same covenant of grace with that covenant which God originally made with Abraham and his posterity as an everlasting covenant. Now, I'm going to be uh, encouraging you to either write down these passages, look them up um, with me, because I think there is much to be learned in these observations that that, uh, will be made 
at the conclusion as we work through the remainder of the sermon today as to the implications of who are the parties in this covenant. God on the one hand and the house of Israel and the house of Judah on the other. In Genesis 17:7, we find this covenant that was made with Abraham. And it says in Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now I want you to see a couple things in these passages. The first I want you to see is that God does establish an everlasting covenant with Abraham. But I want you to see the spiritual promises that are made here, that he will be a God to Abraham and to Abraham's posterity. He will be a God to them. That's not a national promise. That is a spiritual promise made to Abraham and his descendants. But now observe that this same covenant of grace made with Abraham is essentially the same covenant of grace God made with Israel as a nation. That's the next step that we want to. Not the second observation, still the first observation, but the next step in development. Look with me at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. In verse 24, notice what it says. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore he is about to act on behalf of Israel, now a nation. This, I believe, would indicate very clearly that this covenant now that is to be made with Israel is essentially the same covenant that God had made with Abraham that we read of in Genesis 17, 7. In Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8, note likewise. <clears throat> Here God is speaking to Moses. God says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into, in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it you for an in, uh, for a heritage. I am the Lord. <clears throat> Again, 
in this particular passage, note the spiritual promises and even those that are of a, of a physical nature, in actual physical deliverance from a place of bondage. We find throughout the New Testament that this is typical of our redemption. These were, were typical blessings which pointed to the spiritual blessings that were promised to them. Likewise, bringing them into the land in fulfillment of the covenant which God made to Abraham is a typical blessing of bringing his people into their eternal rest in heaven. Again, these are not merely physical, material blessings, but are, at the very essence, spiritual blessings that God is promising to his people. And the spiritual blessing is reiterated, I will be to you a God, just as he uttered that same spiritual blessing to Abraham in Genesis 17:7. Now finally, in this progression, note that the covenant of grace made with Abraham and his posterity and with Israel and her posterity is essentially the same covenant of grace made with Christians under the new covenant. Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. There the Apostle Paul is addressing the very blessings that were promised to Abraham, the, prom the, the promises made to Abraham and to his seed. And he takes seed not only to be actual posterity, but, but focuses attention upon the singular uh, idea, not the collective idea of seed, meaning all of his posterity, but the singularity of the word seed and that being Christ, that all of the blessings were to be realized in Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 he says, And this I say, that the covenant that was uh, confirmed before of God in Christ, that's the covenant that was made with Abraham. He says that this covenant was confirmed before of God in Christ. The law which was 430 years after, this is the period that is designated the law, this is the period <clears throat> that is, uh, falls under this next covenant, the old covenant, under Moses and in succeeding generations. He says, the covenant made with Abraham in Christ, the old covenant through Moses, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. What Paul is arguing is that the promises made to Abraham did not cease with the old covenant. The law of that period could not disannul the promises that were made. Those promises continued right through the period of the old covenant as well to all of those who were Israelites and to those who embraced them by faith, those promises were realized. 
in Israel of old. And so here's the continuity that, that Paul is arguing. Promises made to Israel, promises continue, or promises made to Abraham continue to be made to Israel through both of those covenants. This is the same covenant in essence that God now makes with his people under the new covenant. Because, he says, these promises have not been made of none effect. Even now, they continue. They're not made useless and meaningless. They've not been disannulled. They continue, even to this particular time, under the administration of the new covenant. And just again to show you that the same spiritual blessings that were promised under the covenant made to Abraham, the covenant made to Israel under the old covenant that he would be a God to them, they would be his people. Notice in Hebrews 8, verse 10. This is, the, these are, this is one aspect of the promise made under the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But focus upon this because this is the phrase that has been repeated in these previous covenants. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Same spiritual promises. Same covenant essentially made that Abraham... Israel unto the Old Covenant, and the house of Israel and Judah under the New Covenant. And if that's not enough, simply realize in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, the promises, and if this isn't the, the realization of the New Covenant, the final realization of the New Covenant, I don't know what is. It says in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The spiritual promise is realized. Right all the way through each of these covenants, the same covenant of grace through Christ, the mediator. See, there is, although there is growth and development of this one covenant of grace as we move from the covenant made with Abraham to the old covenant made with Israel and finally to the new covenant realized and fulfilled in Christ and His finished work, there is still only one covenant of grace from the fall of man to the new heaven and the new earth. Now, second observation. Secondly, I would have you observe that the spiritual promises of the covenant of grace made to Abraham and to his house included his children. We're trying to ascertain who are the parties in this covenant. The covenant made with Abraham and his house included his children. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 14, you can look at that. 
particular passage where, again, is reiterated that God was making his covenant not only with Abraham, but with his seed after him in their generations for an everlasting covenant. And he gives to Abraham and to his seed a sign and a seal of the promises that are made in that covenant that God would be a God to them. And it is the, the covenant sign and seal of circumcision. The women are viewed as being represented. The females are viewed as being represented by the men in this particular covenant sign and seal. For women as well were able to participate in the various feasts and the various sacrifices and, and the various aspects of communal life uh, within the, the uh, uh, Church of Israel. But a covenant sign is given not only to the adults who did profess faith, but even to the children who could not yet profess faith. And yet it was a covenant sign which signified and sealed the promises that were made that God would be to them a God and they would be his people. That promise is made. It was not realized in the life of any adult nor in the life of any child. Those promises were not realized until they believed in the Lord their God and received those promises and appropriated those promises unto themselves. And I think it's important to, to understand that in Romans 4.11, Paul very clearly makes uh, a statement that cannot be misunderstood, that circumcision was not a mere national sign. Circumcision was a sacrament which pointed to the promise of righteousness which could be received only by faith. And this particular meaning, this particular significance of circumcision not only spoke to Abraham who did believe and did by his believing realize the promises, but this particular this particular spiritual significance of circumcision also related to the children who could not yet believe. When I say that, a, that circumcision was a sign and a seal, what, again, just those particular terms, so as not to confuse anybody, sign, a sign is that which signifies or represents the promises that are made. That God would be his, their God, that they would be his people, that they would be cut off from their sin and united to the Lord. That is what this, the spiritual significance is of circumcision. That's why God says that they are to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. They are not simply to, to take this spiritual, uh, this, uh, this outward sign and leave it at that, but they are to apply this and receive what that sign means by faith. Circumcise their hearts. To cut off the sin through the promises made in this covenant with Abraham. But it's not only a sign, it's a seal. A seal is that which confirms, that which testifies to the authenticity 
of the promises that are made in this covenant. When there is a covenant of marriage made, what is the seal that is commonly used within most circles? Well, it's either a document wherein there is a testimony affixed at the bottom that this couple has been married and their, their seal is their signature, or it could also be a ring that signify, that seals that, this, that the promises they have made have actually been made to one another. And so likewise, the uh, uh, circumcision, the Apostle Paul says, was a sign and seal to those who received it in the Old Testament. But it was not realized, the promises made were not realized until there was faith. Likewise, dear ones, now moving on, the, the spiritual promises of the covenant of grace made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah under Moses included their children as well. <clears throat> children were not excluded from the promises that were made. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, look with me very clearly. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 through 15. Moses speaking says, You stand this day, all you before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp. This would be a proselyte. From the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water. Servants, again, who were proselytes. That thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. Notice the promises. That he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath sworn or said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. Those who are not yet born. <clears throat> and to see, signify and seal the promise that is made here, God also gives to them in Leviticus 12.3, the same sign and seal of circumcision, which is applied to those proselytes who come in to Israel who have not received the sign and seal of circumcision previously, who profess their faith and then receive circumcision. And it is applied to the infant children, male infant children, Again, females being comprehended under the males, represented by the males, but is administered to infant children because their little ones were embraced in this covenant as well. Then when the spiritual 
promises of the old covenant of grace made to the house of Israel under Moses are realized in the new covenant of grace made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah due to Christ's finished work. In Hebrews 8.8, we would naturally anticipate the new covenant to include their children as well. For the very same houses of Israel and Judah are included under both covenants. And again, I emphasize the word house. The same house of Israel, the same house of Judah, is comprehended under the Old and the New Covenant. If the house of Israel included children under the Old Covenant, the house of Israel must include children under the New Covenant, unless they are specifically cut off and stated to be cut off by Christ in the New Covenant. Where is there a word in the New Covenant that states the children of professing believers have now been excommunicated and cut off from the promises of the covenant of grace and from the sign and seal of those promises to which they were entitled in the Old Covenant and in the Abrahamic Covenant. To the contrary, the children of professing believers are members of the kingdom of God, according to Mark 10.14. For of such ones is the kingdom of God, as Jesus held the infant in his hand. To these very same children are extended the promises of the new covenant in Acts 2.39. For the promises, Peter says, are to you and to your children, to all who are far off and who are called by the ministry of the word, the promises made in the word. The children of professing believers are described as being holy. They are part of the holy people that we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. The holy nation. They are holy. And these children of professing believers are addressed as members of the church along with husbands, wives, parents, and servants in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. They're not excluded. They are, in fact, included. Dear ones, to exclude our children from the promises of grace made in the new covenant <clears throat> and signified and sealed in baptism would not be a move forward from the old covenant but a move backward from the old covenant. You see, the new covenant extends the blessings, makes more full, makes more complete the blessings of God to those who were included in the Old Covenant. It doesn't take away blessings. It doesn't excommunicate those who were comprehended under the Old Covenant. It includes them and amplifies the blessings because Christ has now come. I would submit that if the children of professing believers may be excommunicated from the promises of the covenant of grace made to them in baptism, simply because there is neither authorized com command nor approved example of a little child being baptized, 
then likewise women on the same basis are to be excommunicated from the promises of the covenant of grace made to them in the Lord's Supper. Because there is neither authorized command nor approved example of a woman's eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. You see, both cases are inferred by good and necessary deduction, which is perfectly valid. Furthermore, small children, dear ones, were not baptized in infancy within the church. Where is there one example of a youth or adult having grown up within the church being baptized upon profession of his faith? You see, we're often asked to produce an example of one who is baptized as an infant. We can counter it by simply saying, where is there an example of a child who grew up within the church making a profession of faith and then being baptized? It never occurs in the New Testament. You see, if there is one example of that, we will give up our position with regard to infant baptism if one example can be demonstrated because it overturns our position. But there is no example because that was not the position of the Church of Jesus Christ to exclude and excommunicate the children from the promises and the blessings made in the covenant of grace. But someone may counter, doesn't Mark 16, 16 say that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Isn't that the proper order? Faith is in baptism. Since children cannot believe, they should therefore not be baptized, it is argued. But dear ones, the verse goes on to say, he that believeth not shall be damned. So if it proves that none but those who believe can be baptized, it also just as certainly proves that none but those who believe can be saved. What then? Are all infants dying in infancy damned because they cannot believe? Of course not. God forbid. Mark 16, 16, dear ones, does not address Infants. It addresses proselytes, those who can profess faith in Jesus Christ, coming upon their own into the covenant. It does not address their children, but addresses those who can believe. Just as Second Thessalonians three ten, which says, "If a man will not work, neither let him eat." Are we going to forbid on that basis children from eating because they can't work? That command is not speaking to, to, to small children, to infants. It's speaking to those who can work, just as Mark 6, 6, 16, 16 is speaking to those who can't believe. And who come in as proselytes from outside the church. So likewise do all the other passes, passages in the scripture, in the New Testament, that directly associate faith and baptism together, whether it be Romans 6.3 or whether it be Galatians 3.27, it's speaking to those who can exercise faith. Those who exercise faith realize the promises made to them in their baptism. And that is why Paul can speak to that effect in Romans chapter 6. Verse 3. 
Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And that's why he can say in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Because faith has realized the promises that were made to them in baptism. Now, it is true that that cannot be said of those to simply, to those to whom the promises are merely made, but not realized. They have not been identified in the death of Christ. They have not union with Jesus Christ apart from faith. But those promises are indeed made to them in baptism and call them and invite them to come to Christ. And when they do, they see those promises realized in their life that were made to them in their baptism. Furthermore, if Mark 16.16 lays out an unalterable order, faith followed by baptism, then it might also be argued that Mark 16, verses 17 through 18, also give an unalterable order as well. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Miraculous signs. Read the signs that are mentioned there. There is no seeming exception made. These signs shall follow them that believe. These miraculous wonders, speaking in new tongues, taking poison and drinking and not harming them, being bitten by serpents, performing these miraculous signs. You see, just as there are exceptions in the first case of faith and then baptism, namely covenant children are an exception to that, so there are exceptions in the second case of faith and miraculous signs, namely those not blessed with those particular gifts. If the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the New Covenant, dear ones, include, and this is a very important point, if the house of Israel and the house of Judah in in the New Covenant include no infants, as our Baptist brethren declare, on what basis do we expect that any infant might be saved? Are they saved on the basis of another covenant than the new covenant? Are they saved on the basis of the covenant of works? God forbid. The covenant of works can only condemn infants. For all in Adam die, whereas all in Christ will be made alive, according to 1 Corinthians 15.22. Then upon I ask, what basis are infants saved? Clearly, it must be upon the promises made to them in the new covenant. There is no other basis. And if the promises of the new covenant are made to infants, then infants must be included in the house of Israel and in the house of Judah. And if they are included in the house of Israel and in the house of Judah and the promises are made to them, then the covenant sign and seal of those promises belongs to them. Just baptism in the new covenant. 
Thus the parties in the new covenant, dear ones, are God on the one hand, and the house of Israel, adults and children, and the house of Judah, adults and children, on the other hand. The third observation that I'd like to make is this, as we close today. It should be observed that our, our part as Gentiles in the new covenant made with the houses of Israel and Judah is the result of us being graciously grafted into their tree and receiving the promises made, to, made in Christ to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the root of that tree. Look with me at Romans chapter 11. Verses 16 through 18. Paul is in this chapter explaining God's program, God's new covenant that Israel has turned its back upon the Lord. God has, has removed them as branches, as a nation, from the new covenant. And he has blinded the vast majority of them. But there are, and Paul uses himself as an example, these various branches who belong to Israel who God has saved and who are yet a part of this particular olive tree, a natural branch within this olive tree. And in explaining this, he says in Romans 11, verse 16, For if the first fruit... Be holy, the lump is also holy. That is, if the first part of the, the lump of, uh, of uh, the bread uh, be, be holy and set apart to God, then the whole lump is holy as well. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off and thou... Being a wild olive tree, speaking of the Gentiles, were grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, that is, the promises, the root or the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> Boast not against the branches. Don't think that you're better than the Jews who were cut out. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root. You don't bear and carry the promises. The promises bear and carry you. Thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Romans 15:27 the apostle Paul says it hath pleased them verily and they and their debtors they are for if the gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things of the Jews spiritual things of the promises made to them their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things 
that we should minister unto the Jews in physical and carnal things because we've become partakers of their spiritual promises. We've been grafted in, dear ones. So the world doesn't revolve around us Gentiles. It's not that we were a second thought. This was God's plan all along. But realize, we as Gentiles partake of the promises made to the Jews. This illustrates this tree is the covenant of grace. And God has brought in both Jew and Gentile into this covenant. That's how we become associated with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, is because we have been graciously grafted into this tree and partake of the blessings, the promises made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul argues that we've become citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. We've become partakers, dear ones, of these spiritual promises. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I have you note that Israel as a whole did not truly believe these promises. In Hebrews chapter 4, and here's the warning that I want to close with today. The Apostle Paul says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. That is, Israel under the Old Covenant. The gospel is preached unto them, as well as to us, for Israel in the New Covenant. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And therefore, they were removed from that olive tree. But God promises later on in that same chapter, Romans 11, that they will be grafted back into their own olive tree, the natural branches. God will save them. God will bring them unto himself. And he will be to them a God. They will be to him a people. And it's the very promises in the New Covenant that are specifically mentioned in Romans 11, 26 and 27, when he says, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. What covenant? The new covenant. When I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Let us, dear ones, therefore not be like Israel, who had the gospel and the promises made unto them, who had the sign of of those promises sealed, unto them in their baptism or in circumcision in the Old Covenant, baptism in the New Covenant. But they did not embrace by faith the promises that were made to them. We see, dear ones, what will happen to us 
the apostle leaves no doubt if we ourselves do not embrace these promises that are made to us in the new covenant what will happen in Romans 11:18 through 20 boast not against the branches but if thou boast thou bearest not the root but the root thee thou will say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in well because of unbelief they were broken off and thou standest by faith be not high minded but fear don't take advantage young people children young adults older adults don't take advantage of the promises made to you in the new covenant embrace them Jesus offers himself to you embrace them love them treasure them for they belong unto you they are made unto you embrace them this day Christ our Savior let us stand in prayer our Heavenly Father thy word as it goes forth is a verbal gospel even as thy sacraments are visible gospel which declare thy promises We pray, Father, that we would not allow thy word to go forth unmixed with faith, nor to allow our baptism to go forth and be applied unmixed with faith. Help us as parents, O Lord, to continue to, to bring before our children's attention what their baptism signifies and seals unto them, those promises made. Cause us, O Lord, to be ever so faithful with our children in teaching them these things. We ask our Father that Thou would not allow any of our children to turn their backs upon these promises this day. But, O oh Father, that Thou would grip their hearts, that Thou would pour forth Thy Spirit upon them and grant to them faith to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that Thou would give to, to us who are adults the grace to improve our own baptisms, O Lord, that we would not forget no matter how many years ago it was that we were baptized. Whether we were baptized as infants or whether we were baptized as adults, let us, Father, not forget what our baptism signifies and seals, those precious promises that were ratified to us in the blood of our Savior. O Lord, we do pray that we would not trample upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and treat it with contempt by turning our backs upon these wonderful promises this day. Lord, seal them, seal them not only uh, unto us in our baptism, but seal them in our hearts by thy Spirit. We do ask, O oh Lord, these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos, at great discounts, is on the web 
at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.